Welcome to Love Unpacked, a podcast based on the book Love Unpacked. I'm your host, Andy Franklin. Join me on a journey to unpack our stories, confront our past, and find our way to unconditional love. Welcome back. Feels good. I am, I'm going to be straight up with you. I am a little nervous about this episode only because I think when I wrote this book, I forgot, which is a good thing. I forgot that I was going to maybe have to read it out loud at some point. And while that helped me write it honestly, it's also very weird a little bit to share this chapter I'm definitely a writer by nature, less of a public speaker, although I have done that. Um, I'm just, (laughs) this is like a perfect example of how the unpack is never done because the chapter is all about shame. And here I am feeling that weird bubble of embarrassment, shame that comes up when you talk about things that are so taboo. So As you can see, I'm still learning. It's an ever-growing process, and I'm putting on my big girl panties. I'm doing it. We're sharing this chapter today. I think the title, it speaks for itself. You know know what this chapter is going to be about. And if it makes you uncomfortable, just know that it makes me uncomfortable too. (laughs) But that's why we have to talk about it, because the uncomfortable things are still very important and I would argue that sometimes they're more important because they don't ever get a stage. No one's ever talking about them. Don't ask me why I thought I was the woman for the job, but apparently I did because I wrote this chapter and the truth of the matter is it's a very important chapter. So here we go. Let's brave this awkwardness together. Chapter 3. Shame. Next stop, Masturbation Station. Shame is a soul-eating emotion. Carl Gustav Jung. It was a warm summer evening, one of the last I'd see before starting high school in a few days, when everything changed. I'm lying in bed when it begins. The itch feels like the first hello from a furniture salesperson. Welcome. Can I help you find anything specific today? It starts taking shape, but I don't feel the need to acknowledge it yet. Oh, I'm just browsing, but thank you. Still, it hovers like a vulture, circling back and declaring, Just so you know, we've got a big special going on right now. Let me know if you need any assistance. This tickle is persistent, so I give it a quick nod, reaching my hand over my pajama pants and letting my fingertips gently attempt to swipe the discomfort away. That first rub was like a moth to the flame. I've opened up Pandora's box, bit the apple, pressed the big red button. Like any good salesperson, my itch only grew stronger with each attempt to ditch it. Do you like this? It's great for families, and it looks great in any space. Do you need to finance? We have financing. Can I start an order for you? I slide my hand underneath my panties to be more precise. I do like this, but I'm not ready to commit just yet. I'm just browsing. Give me some space. Still, the prickle grows stronger, forcing me to press my index and middle fingers faster and firmer over my right labia. 
A rush of blood floods my pink lips, warming my entire body like a cup of creamy cappuccino. I'm tingling all the way down to my toes as the tickle builds like a bass drum beat in a rock and roll song. It shouts, but wait, there's more. Let me show you this. It's going to blow your mind. And I find myself bewitched by its desire to please me. My body succumbs to the seduction and I whisper, show me the best you've got as the heat rises to my face and escapes through my quickening breath. My hands and the itch work in tandem, and before I know what happened, I find myself the proud new owner of the purchase of a lifetime. There's warm, wet juice garnishing my fingertips, and for a moment, while my heart rate begins to stabilize, I wonder if I peed myself. Masturbation. Orgasm. These were dirty foreign words used to describe porn stars and women who chain-smoked and shoplifted lacy bras from the mall. I was positively clueless about my body and its primal urges because nobody ever discussed sex to me outside of the required school courses where they passed out tampons stapled to Tootsie Rolls and reinforced the mindset that sex would cause chlamydia, AIDS, and pregnancy. My teacher for 7th grade sex education was a middle-aged man who wore cargo shorts year-round and looked like he spent his weekends backpacking off a dirt path and collecting unique rocks for his glass-encased collection. Most days, he'd devote a few minutes reading from our textbook and then switch over to an educational video about the penis and vagina while proceeding to lift a single hairy leg to his chair in the Captain Morgan stance so we could all see his junk through his khaki uniform as he asked if we had any questions. You try paying attention when the outline of a grown man's penis is 10 feet from your blushing face for an hour. So I'm there in my bed, and I just had the most intense experience of my life to date. And I'm now aware of two realities. One, I'm a sinner. Two, I'm going to do it again. I'm like Janet in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I've tasted blood, and I want more, more, more. Heaven help the wicked because this girl is on fire, and she can't escape the flames. My love affair with myself had begun. But every time I'd touch myself, I'd feel a charge of shame flood over me. To the world, I was a sweet, innocent girl. But inside, I was filled with sexual desire that left me feeling vile. You see, I worked up quite a reputation for myself as the goody-goody smart girl over the years. It started in elementary school, when I practically became the local poster child for D.A.R.E. They hooked me in with every cartoon about the dangers of peer pressure, and I was drunk on the alcohol-free Kool-Aid. We all had to write speeches about choosing to be drug-free in the fifth grade, and mine was chosen for the graduation ceremony. I stood up in front of the entire student body and their parents and pledged my allegiance to a substance-free life in a two-page-long story about the man that had left me for the bottle and how much better I'd be than he was. Maybe I couldn't have his love, but I'd gain the respect of that audience. They'd praise me for my efforts toward a better America. They'd take pity on me and see my story and know that I was worthy of their love. I was going to earn it. I was going to show them that I could rise above peer pressure and parties and stereotypes. 
I'd become the perfectly good daughter every father wanted. And eventually, mine would come to his senses and return once he heard how magnificently accomplished I was. After my proud display of almightiness in fifth grade dare class, my parents just so happened to gain an interest in faith. We began going to church every Sunday and youth group every Wednesday. The church we attended was one of those mega ones that had its own gift shop and cafe. And every week I'd grab a strawberry smoothie and browse the aisles for Bible bookmarks, worship CDs, and what would Jesus do bracelets. I'd found a new high to take over the loss of the D.A.R.E. program. And that high was none other than the cross-bearer himself. Oh, I let my Jesus freak flag soar high and mighty. Arms stretched to the sky, knees on the blue carpet. I had a new Kool-Aid to drink and I was all in. I got baptized. I even persuaded my parents to let me attend a church summer camp that was about five or so days long. There, I got baptized again for the thrill of it. That's twice in six months for anyone wondering. I waltzed into my new middle school that fall with cross necklaces around my neck and conviction in my heart. At the same time, my body was changing and lady puberty was showing up with a vengeance. Although I needed glasses, my parents couldn't afford the ones I wanted. So they teamed up with the optometrist to convince me that ice blue metal frames were cool as shit. And I went for it. I wore chopsticks in my hair, those icicles on my freckled face, and the extra 15 pounds that came with having my genetic makeup. Or maybe also eating nothing but Lay's barbecue chips with chocolate pudding every day. I wrote I Love Jesus all over my folders. And I was in the show choir, which wasn't a sign of coolness back in my day, despite winning championships. We didn't have shows like Glee to glorify us. And there were approximately zero cheerleaders or football players in our group. Our choreographer was a tiny, petite, blonde woman who couldn't stand me and would always make me a box girl, which meant I was stuck doing half-assed versions of all the dance numbers on a literal box because she didn't want the fat kids taking up space on the floor. What I'm trying to tell you here is boys didn't like me. There wasn't a single quirk about me that jumped out to a guy and screamed, dateable! However, several things gave off the Jesus is my boyfriend vibe, and, well, who wants to compete with that? Okay, fine. Nobody was lining up to duke it out with JC anyway. But, you know... I certainly wasn't making it easy on anyone if they wanted to do so. But in the summer of 2000, when I was getting ready to tackle my first year of high school, something dramatic happened. My mom realized her at-home hair dyeing services, highlight cap included, were going to give us both PTSD and started taking us to an actual salon for our hair. Goodbye skunk streaks. I got contacts and then proceeded to throw them in the trash because they were bulky and annoying. But then I went and got new frames that didn't make me look like an 85-year-old librarian. My grandma passed her old rusty stationary bike down to me, and I got super into a Paula Abdul workout video my mom had purchased and left for dead in the TV console. I scaled back on the barbecue chips and pudding cup combo and started reaching for apples on purpose. Suddenly, in a summer's time, your girl was looking cute. I waltzed into high school like Lainey Boggs and She's All That, post-makeover. 
Okay, maybe I was more like Drew Barrymore and never been kissed, but you catch my drift. Suddenly, boys were paying attention to me, passing me notes, and even leaving me presents in my locker. One tall, skinny boy in my English class asked me to coffee, and I genuinely laughed in his face because I thought he was joking. It was the beginning of a new era for me, one where I was suddenly a young woman of interest. I'd spend the next 15 years battling disordered eating and body dysmorphia, but that's a story for later. The big guy upstairs and I were still best friends, but I was less outward about it. I stopped decorating my neck with crosses as if I were warding off evil spirits in first period English and replaced all of my What Would Jesus Do folder paraphernalia with photos of my friends, favorite bands, and inspirational quotes. Halfway into my freshman year, I started taking a drama class, and there, I found my people. Word quickly spread about the adorable little freshman with dimples and freckles who was outgoing and funny with the innocence of a virgin. People in the theater were enthralled with me and me with them. I'd never been around people who were so open, honest, and free. They were unapologetic. They kissed boys, kissed girls, kissed whoever they damn well pleased. They undressed in front of one another, sat on each other's laps, and told jokes that were erotic, controversial, and crude. Never had I ever seen anything like it in all of my life. And I was hooked. Likewise, most of them had never seen the likes of me inside the fourth wall. They were enamored with my childlike purity. I was like a living organism inside of a petri dish. An oddity they couldn't quite wrap their heads around. Surprise erupted in the room as they watched me work a dramatic scene. They couldn't believe I had so much depth. It seemed impossible and charming to them that I'd never even experienced a kiss and could still somehow keep up with them and their humor, their wit, their raciness. I melted into them like butter on a warm dinner roll. They stretched my horizons like a vibrant sunset. That theater became my home and the people, my people. They continued to be provocative and I continued to be innocent and we all lived together in beautiful acting harmony. Only, when we got off the stage, their scenes ended, but mine never did. I was cloaked under the blanket of innocence. It had become such a massive part of my identity within this new home of mine that I was sure if I unveiled myself, I'd destroy the very fabric of our tender relationship. One night, sophomore year, we were having a cast party. One of the older girls said we should all use her aunt's house for the party because nobody would be home. So we laughed, ate chips, and a few people drank in secret. Then we all cozied up in our sleeping bags in the living room. Somebody suggested we play Ten Fingers. I'd never played, and there was a roar of laughter and excitement over the idea that everyone present got to take my Ten Fingers virginity. A beautiful older girl with thick, stark black, wiry hair explained the rules to me and began with her first confession. Never have I ever had sex in a car. Everyone began howling as two people put a finger down. Mine were obviously still intact. Next person. Never have I ever made out with a girl. All of my fingers remain tall and proud.
Never have I ever hooked up with Steve in the green room. Direct attempts to destroy select people in the game were highly encouraged. Then, somebody went in for the kill. Never have I ever masturbated. My heart started to race, and I anxiously looked around the room as every single finger dropped but mine. Oh my god, I was just kidding! I wanted to see if there was anyone who wouldn't put their finger down. Andy, you've never masturbated? Suddenly, I was on the stage. All eyes were glued to me. I could hear faint laughter in the distance, but it was hard to hear over my quickening breath, my thumping heartbeat, my racy lie. Someone pressed on in disbelief. No way. Are you serious? You've never tried it? It's amazing. You need to try. Guys, come on. It's Andy. She's so sweet and innocent, so of course she hasn't. Oh my God, you're so adorable. I just want to eat you up. I wanted to tell them. Really, I did. But being the innocent one seemed to be the only role I could fill well, and I wasn't willing to risk losing that. After all, what would Jesus do if he got wind of my new hobby? Probably nail himself to a cross all over again and declare, That's it. That's the last straw. I'm done with these sinful humans. So I got to keep being the wee little lamb to my friends and the filthy, dirty night caresser to myself. Best of both worlds? Hardly. My definition of wrong needed a good old-fashioned chimney sweep. But unfortunately, Bert was too preoccupied with Mary Poppins to help. Now that I'm thinking about it, Dick Van Dyke looked pretty damn good dancing around with all that soot on his face, all sweaty and sexy and... Excuse me one moment. I'll be right back. Unpacking shame. Friends, isn't it mind-blowing the kind of pressure we put on ourselves to fit into a mold of what or who we think we're supposed to be? I mean... What in God's green earth do we think we're doing by denying the straight-up gift we were given to feel and experience pleasure? It's like when we go to a birthday party and skip the cake because we're trying to be good. Look, Becky, there's nothing noble about skipping the birthday cake. It's delicious and enjoyable, and somebody baked that cake with the intention of you enjoying it. Eat the damn cake! We are also created as women to feel pleasure. Not just men, not just women who look like Angelina Jolie, not just that one woman you always see in the pickup line at your kid's school who looks so put together and perfect and you're sure she farts rainbows and never forgets to shower. Orgasms aren't solely reserved for the Adonises and Aphrodites of this world. They belong to you and me and the person sitting across from you right now as you read this book. But don't look, or you'll never be able to see this person again without thinking of their O face. Had I realized this in high school, I'm 99% positive I would have saved myself from years of pain, abuse, and painfully awkward relationships and situations. But alas, I was slow to learn and quick to pretend I knew everything. And so, the goody-goody lived on in secret. All hail the Queen of Innocence as she sits on her throne of lies with her hand down her panties. The fact was, I didn't just touch myself. I loved touching myself. 
Every second building up to an orgasm felt like the climb to 13,000 feet in a small aircraft right before jumping out and free-falling in the sky. But the minute I released, it was as if my parachute jammed and I was plummeting headfirst to my demise. How could something so liberating also seize all the air from my lungs and leave me paralyzed in fear? I needed to uncover the answer because it was keeping me from embracing my sexuality even now as a happily married woman in her 30s. In her 2010 TEDx talk titled The Power of Vulnerability, Dr. Brene Brown refers to shame as the most powerful master emotion, adding, it is the fear that we're not good enough. Listening to her words lit a candle in my brain, which is what I envisioned light bulb moments were like before Benjamin Franklin discovered electricity. There was a name for that lump in my throat that crept up every time I pleasured myself. She was none other than shame herself. Shame, as it turns out, was a consequence of my life as an overachieving do-gooder. The church taught me to fear God, to fear sex, and most of all, to fear myself and my desires. It groomed me to err on the side of caution in regards to things I didn't know much about. And I knew absolutely nothing about the primal urges I was having. As a result, when I gave in to them, it felt like I was disrupting the natural order of the universe, betraying my parents, and condemning myself to eternal damnation. When you spend your entire adolescence in the shadows of what and who you believe you're supposed to be to have any value or worth, it's a clusterfuck to dismantle. Meeting the love of my life wasn't a garlic necklace warding off my shame vampire or a loophole in the contract or a Pasco collect $200 type of deal. My shame was more active than a Fitbit on a marathon runner's wrist, running rampant on my self-esteem and silently charlie-horsing not only my sex life, but my humanness. The discussion of female pleasure is more taboo than admitting you own a Nickelback album which is why so many of us grow up believing all things sex-related are either to make men happy or make a baby. We affiliate masturbation with men and even shove them into a box based on how openly they talk about it, how often they do it, and whether or not they use outside stimulation for their process. Teenage boys are expected to watch a lot of porn and keep a bottle of lotion on their nightstand. But if an adult man does the same thing, we assume he's some creep who lives in his parents' basement and has a foot fetish. Likewise, if a young girl or woman does any of the above, she's immediately labeled gross, slutty, loose, dirty, and out of her damn mind like a woman on a seven-day juice cleanse. Sometimes I think men look at women's sexuality like it's the final level of a video game. And once they win, they'll unlock all the secrets of the universe to the poor, defenseless female. He, of course, will bless her with his legendary dick and switch to multiplayer mode so that she too can level up and achieve orgasm. Only, she's been a damsel for so long that she doesn't want to risk losing this new life. So she fakes orgasms and keeps his house clean just to keep him happy. She never experiences real pleasure herself, but the sex is okay, I guess. And she gets to have kids and watch The Bachelor every week. So, who can complain? As bad as men are about women's sexual satisfaction, our female peers can be even worse. 
Nobody invites the candid about sex girlfriend to hot yoga class because she's tasteless. Never mind that she's been in a monogamous relationship for 10 years. That girl is trash because women don't talk about those sorts of topics. In my experience, when you talk about sex, orgasms, etc. in front of other women, especially in the mommy world, they look at you like you're exotic. But not the good kind of exotic, like a tropical bird. They deem you more as like a Zika-carrying mosquito that needs to be swatted down and destroyed before it spreads any more of its disease to others. She says she experiences frequent orgasms and believes all women should have access to this sorcery? Witch! She's a witch! I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that many women are in hiding. The amount of ladies I've spoken with who've never experienced an orgasm is staggering and downright criminal. The common denominators I've unearthed from these women are that they fake it and never touch themselves. Ladies, we have to stop faking orgasms. You don't have to talk to a single person about masturbation, and you certainly don't have to write about it publicly in a book like I am. However, if the concept of touching yourself brings up big feelings of shame and discomfort, I want to encourage you to dig deeper and figure out why. Why does the idea of tapping into this gift of pleasure frighten you? To be clear, I'm not saying you should open a Pornhub account or have permanently pruned fingertips from excessive contact with bodily fluids or run away to a European sex show or anything quite as wild as that. Instead, I want to encourage you to get in sync with your body. What I realized once I called shame by its name was that touching myself was actually a wonderfully natural thing. And it also taught me what I like and don't like, which I was then able to bring to the bedroom with my husband later in life. We all need to learn about our bodies and explore them to find out what turns us on and to discover what works for us. When you take the time to get to know yourself, your romantic relationships are better and you can offer your spouse more because you're able to show them how to please you as opposed to pretending to orgasm and finding reasons not to engage in anything sexual. Unpacking the shame I carried over masturbation was tricky. Trying to convince my brain I wasn't a good girl gone bad flying off the handle took time. It took grace. I had to admit my fandom for pleasure before I could embrace the beauty of learning about my body. I had to get a little uncomfortable and do things I'd never done, like look at my vagina in a mirror so I could understand what areas were pleasure sources and which were for functionality. Have you ever heard about those women who don't know that you pee and bleed from two different holes? Maybe you're one and I'm not throwing shade your way because I was one of those people too. I was so out of touch with my own body that I didn't even know there was a difference between the urethral and vaginal opening. I'll never forget seeing a video pop up on Facebook about it and legitimately gasping out loud in shock. You're telling me there have been two holes this entire time? The truth is, everyone will tell you that you're responsible for yourself. Your happiness, your health, your success... They'll reiterate how you're responsible for all parts of yourself, except your pleasure. No, apparently pleasure is the only part of you that you're not accountable for. And if you do take the lead, 
there's a thick shame cloud cast overhead. So instead, we place it entirely on the shoulders of another human being for the rest of eternity. We make it their responsibility to make us orgasm, like it's as simple as pressing a button on our backs. This implies our partner is somehow in control of our bodies instead of us, meaning we don't live as autonomously as we'd like to believe. We want to believe our pleasure lies in someone else's hands because we have so much shame and misunderstanding wrapped around it. But the truth is simple. Your pleasure is your responsibility. It's more than right spot, right time. Your partner can do everything right, and you can be so in your head that it doesn't matter. That's because they aren't in charge of your pleasure. You are. And it goes so much further than in the bedroom. You've got to turn yourself on, and you've got to charge up your life. Pleasure exists in all areas of life, not just sex. Finding pleasure in the company you keep, in the books you read, in the food you eat. Finding pleasure in nature, in sunshine, in a cool breeze on your skin. Finding pleasure in yourself. Learning to delight in who you are and how you think. Studying your edges so that when you see them move in bed, you aren't startled by their presence. Feeling love for your body exactly where it is. You're accountable for your pleasure. And when you realize that, sex becomes more about connection and less about exchange. It takes away performance pressure and allows both partners to be open about their likes, dislikes, limits, fantasies, and so forth. Let me paint this picture a little more vibrantly. Have you ever bought a piece of furniture from Ikea? They come unassembled and all the directions are written in Swedish, which is great if you can read Swedish, but not so pleasant for the rest of us. The language barrier forces you to rely on pictures and sheer willpower to get your bookshelf, desk, or bed frame built. Each project feels like trying to solve the formula for time travel, and usually several hours and curse words later, you end up with a sturdy enough looking piece of furniture and a couple extra bolts and screws. The extras are baffling, but you're unwilling to take it apart and start that hell all over again. So you tuck them away and pretend they never existed, hoping for the best and eventually forgetting it was never adequately built from the get-go. Sure, it can hold up for a while, but eventually it comes crashing down after you tossed your keys on it, like a cherry blanketed in a whipped cream avalanche. Both the cherry and the keys were trying to make their home on top of a precarious structure. Eventually, they were always going to plummet without a solid foundation to support them. The same applies when we treat certain parts of ourselves like extras we can toss in a drawer and forget about. Our bodies aren't poorly made IKEA furniture. Every nook and cranny of us was by design and meant to be utilized. When we exclude parts of our blueprint, we can't live up to the potential we were created to obtain. We cheapen our own product when we refuse to go back and find out where the missing bolts and screws belong. If we truly see our bodies as temples, then we should feel honored to have the opportunity to live within their walls and experience all of their glorious gifts. We should treat them with tender care and know all of their edges. 
We should build ourselves and our souls up using every last available tool given to us because we weren't created to leave the most fulfilling parts of ourselves dormant. We weren't created to leave any parts of ourselves dormant. Consequently, shame tries to convince us we don't need every piece. It says we're good enough without that bit there and this bit here. It makes us fear tearing down the structure that appears to have kept us safe all these years to reassemble ourselves using every last bolt and screw we've been given. But a foundation without all the pieces cannot hold forever. It's a lie, an illusion of safety, all the while filling up and getting more unstable by the minute. It creates stress on parts of us that should have an even weight distribution were they crafted correctly. It's why we find ourselves restless, moody, self-conscious, envious, stressed, overwhelmed, and so on. Think about it. Imagine a teapot unable to release steam. As the water heats up, pressure builds in the pot's belly. Pressure that's meant to be released. But if the steam has nowhere to go, it'll cause the pot to explode. You and I are the teapots, and our bodies are the water. Orgasms release oxytocin, they reduce stress, and they create a closer bond between partners. They're the steam we expel to keep the pot from exploding. We've got no problem tending to swollen, tired muscles, applying creams, foam rolling, getting massages to work them out. So why don't we treat our sex organs with the same care? Why do we shy away from this vital relief our bodies yearn for naturally? I want you to know, in case nobody has ever said it to you, that orgasm isn't a dirty word, and enjoying the deep connection and pleasure you get from intimacy is nothing to be ashamed of savoring. Shame and embarrassment have no place within us. They're what keep us from knowing the difference between our urethra and vagina. They deprive us from experiencing the most beautiful, natural parts of our humanity. If you're feeling wobbly, then it's time to start the undoing so you can rebuild with all of your pieces. You, me, and the dolphins were born to experience the rush and liberation of our sexuality. It's a gift we were born with, not a curse, not a punishment, not a test, not an impurity. It's truly a beautiful bonding inheritance. Thank you so much for listening to the Love Unpacked podcast. I'm your host, Andy Franklin, and you can find me on Instagram at Andy M. Franklin and at love underscore unpacked. And if you're interested in purchasing the book, it is sold on Amazon, IndieBound, and Barnes & Noble.